Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. It's Hugh Ballou. Uh, in this episode, we've got a fascinating guest, fascinating guest, Sam Palazzolo. And Sam, tell people about who you are and a little bit about why you're doing what you do. Uh, and, and then we'll get into some data about how people can utilize what you know to make their life better. So Tam, tell, Sam, tell us who you are. Sure. Thanks, Hugh. Appreciate you having me. Uh, so Sam Palazzolo, I run a small private equity firm called Tip of the Sphere Ventures. And I founded the firm in 2012 after I led a tech startup to a successful private equity exit. I like the model so much. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to run a private equity firm. I've always enjoyed the entrepreneurial space and I had a financial background, so it wasn't quite a moonshot for me. Uh, we celebrated our nine-year anniversary this past February on the drive to 10 next year. And uh, we're, we're a private equity firm that does a couple of different things. We have two sides of the house. Uh, one is a consultancy. I come from big consulting like Deloitte and Aon's Change Management Group. Um, so we do business transformation consulting, which is a nice way of saying change management. And the other side of the house is a venture firm. Uh, we invest in entrepreneurs that have startup needs. We provide some business funding consulting and we're a good M&A firm. So in a nutshell, that is me, uh, Sam Palazzola. Sam, um, so we're talking to non primarily nonprofit leaders and clergy and their boards who yep. hopefully are business people in the community. So as a venture capitalist, are the leadership challenges faced for nonprofit the same as for-profit? They are uh, 100%. And I should also footnote, caveat, full disclosure, I started a nonprofit, a 501c3 back in 2017. It's called the Javelin Institute. Uh, the aim is to provide executive education. I'm an adjunct faculty member at UNLV. I teach an exec ed course based on my fifth book on leadership. And so you are spot on, Hugh. The challenges that a leader faces, whether it's in a profit or nonprofit space, they're identical. Leadership is leadership is leadership. UNLB, where is that? Uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. It's Las Vegas, Las Nevada. Vegas, yes. Been there many times, many times. Mostly to Lake Las Vegas where there are no casinos. <laughs> at least there weren't at the time. So we do, um, we haven't compared notes or anything, but that's exactly, exactly our posture and what we teach people because we got to be better. We got an idea. And, you know, we're social entrepreneurs and you, you may work with startups with entrepreneurs, the, mm -hmm. the bright, shiny object. We think we can fly a plane and why mess with taking lessons, you know, that kind of thing. So some of the challenges are exactly the same, except nonprofit leaders don't see ourselves as, as um, entrepreneurs, but we're doing something different. And I think a social entrepreneur, in, in my definition, uh, wants to do something for the good of humankind. So, so as we equip ourselves, what's the most important thing that a leader needs to do to equip themselves for the journey? What's the, the first set of things they need to do? Yeah, I, I think that there's six. We've identified six, and we typically will do this in an executive briefing with 
either new clients as we onboard them. Maybe they want to find out a little bit more about us, what it is that we do. But we look at six different items that are key for leaders, especially as we come out of the pandemic right now. And it all starts with thinking strategically and acting tactfully. Uh, we spend a lot of time in the boardroom, in brainstorming around a coffee pot, or even a virtual cup of coffee, having these good strategy sessions. Now, one of the things though that we recognized years back was that the best strategies need to have a great execution plan. <laughs> Uh, good strategies, no execution, you might as well not do it. So for us, one of the six is think strategically and act tactfully, Hugh. In my experience, I've been doing this kind of work for 32 years, working with leaders, mid-cap corporations, startup entrepreneurs, um, and various levels of church and nonprofit leaders and, and rabbis. Um, we do have some of the same challenges. And one of the challenges is the persona of the leader, and it's not the boss anymore. It's the influencer and the cheerleader. How do, how do you see that? You know, um, I, I worked with a leader one time on a project at his organization. He had just came into the organization from the outside uh, on paper, brilliant credentials. PhD, uh, had successfully run other organizations, was injected into this new organization and had been there for about three months. <clears throat> and he came to me, Hugh, excuse me, and he said, Sam, I gotta tell you, my people are terrible. I think I need to fire them all. <laughs> I can replace them this afternoon with a totally different cast of characters. All 50 of them can go out and find somewhere else to go and be successful at. And I remember I looked at him and I said, you know, <laughs> I'll change his name, Bob. <laughs> You know, leadership isn't necessarily a popularity contest, but it isn't exactly an unpopularity contest either. In other words, I get your drive to results. This is what makes leaders leaders. We want to achieve something, right? Whether it's in a profit or nonprofit space, we want to feel like we're accomplishing something. Um, how we get there, though, can differ dramatically. So when, when you talk a little bit about the leader and some of the choices that they make, that, you know, I would look at it from the, it's not always a popularity contest, but it certainly isn't an unpopularity contest either. Well, um, you might have heard that I spent a career as a musical conductor. And um, the, there's a saying, if the orchestra respects the conductor, they, can, they play as the conductor intends. And if they don't, they play exactly as you direct. Now, you're judged in real time. You can see failures. You can see mishaps. You can see miscommunications. And most of our communication is nonverbal. Now, we do give very concise, you know, the, there's a very different culture of the choir. you got to hype them up and get them interested and talk about all, all the nuances of it. Right. Orchestra, tell us what to do and let's play. You know, it's very, so understanding your culture and understanding how to influence that culture and the days of the, the dictator uh, conductor uh, like George Sell or, or um, you know, that era of people, uh, you know, I don't think it works in today's culture. Musicians have a skill set and they have a pride and they want to do a good job. It's our job as a leader to bring it out of the culture. What similarities do you see leaders, even in small organizations, having that level of influence on their teams? 
Yeah, this is this is the second item that's on our list to you. It's know your strengths as well as your weaknesses. So in my background, I work with Toyota Lexus. We were one of the original adopters of Marcus Buckingham and the Gallup Organization Strength Finder Assessment. And Marcus said something very interesting in one of our conversations about, you know, we're focusing on strengths, but what about the weaknesses? Where do they come into play? And, and Marcus's response was, your weaknesses should be irrelevant. In other words, if you, can, if you focus on your strengths, you'll far offset any type of skill development, uh, beating your head against a wall moment that might lead to improvement of your weaknesses. In, in other words, that little train that could, in Marcus's world, shouldn't have. <laughs> it should have just stayed in the depot. So second item on our six things that leaders need to focus on as they come out of the pandemic, know your strengths as well as your weaknesses. The role of the leader is to not only know their own strengths as well as weaknesses, but everyone on their team as well. And with a strength focus, you got to pull the best out of the people that surround you. That's the, that's the true task of leaders. Absolutely. I'm, um, I'm, broadcasting from the campus of the University of Lynchburg, and I'm looking at the mountains behind me, right over there, um, and I'm facilitating a session on a SWAT for a board that's not related to the university. We just happen to be meeting here, but I've had a, a series of, of sessions with people thinking about what are the gaps that we need to close as leaders? You know, we have these skills, but we don't need to do everything, and that's, that's one of the big fallacies of leadership is, A, we have to have all the right answers, and B, we need to do whatever we ask other people to do, which is they're both wrong, right? I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, most leaders are overachievers, right? They got to the role that they play in life, not by sitting on the bench and not by sitting still, but by actually going out and doing something. It's difficult. There comes a tipping point where your productivity actually decreases in the event you're not able to delegate. Uh, we look at this as, this is the third item on our list of six things, Hugh. It's value creation, not only for the organization, but for your team around you. The maximizing of value that is present in a team typically is led by the leader, because leaders lead, right? So how is it that you can maximize the value that you create? That typically is through the act of delegation. Now, for people like me, and I come from a long line of accountants. I mean, my father was an accountant. His father was an accountant. My great-grandfather, he counted sheep back in Italy. A long line of accountants, Hugh. And one of the things that my father always drilled into me was you need to be able to delegate and have comfort with it, which you're going to find extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> but if you want to get more done, you can go fast and go alone, or you can go big and bring everybody with you. So value creation, our third item on our list, uh, it, it kind of all ties together, Hugh. It all has to work together. Uh, folks listening, you heard it right here on the Nonprofit Exchange. Um, these are themes that, that, that we uh, embody and we share with, with uh, people in the work that we do with, with nonprofits everywhere. And by the way, um, isn't nonprofit a bad word? It's a, it's a tax exempt business, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. I mean, 
the the executive education uh, company that I founded, and it's a company, right? I, I treat it like a company, run it like a company. We modeled it after the best of the best that are out there in not only a profit, but nonprofit sector. And the beauty of a nonprofit is at a certain level, and you know this, Hugh, and so do the listeners here today, you can see their tax returns. <laughs> you have public access to that information. Part of being a 501c3 nonprofit or a nonprofit agency is that you get to look at their revenue. We modeled our executive education offering off of a $150 million annual revenue generating nonprofit. And from my perspective, and I work with a lot of businesses, both the Fortune 500 and those in the SMB camp, um, I know a lot of them that are at that lower end of the small and medium-sized business category. They'd love to have a $150 million annual revenue operation, right? But they're nowhere near it. A lot of them, the majority, are in that good 10, 25 million annual revenue. So business is business, whether it's for-profit or non-profit. It is. And, and furthermore, in the, in the um, social benefit for-purpose world, I'll call it tax-exempt world, we're measured by the impact of, of the results that we create. And I think that's what's going to attract funders and sustainable funding to what we do. So we, we talk a lot about what we do. And back to your point about um, having a strategy is really mandatory, but all, all too often it becomes credenzaware, as a friend of mine calls it. And it, there's no implementation. It's a piece of paper. It's, it's like the, the conductor score. We got a piece of paper. Now it's our job to make something happen from that. So the, the biggest gap, I think, is this implementation piece. And probably 90% of the failure is right there, isn't it? Uh, at least. <laughs> you know, think of, it, think of it like this, Hugh. You have an opportunity to go to a workshop. You go to the workshop. You sit through the couple of days worth. You not only take in the content, but hopefully it's a true workshop where you develop the action plan for after the workshop, when you get back to the workplace. What typically ends up happening, and this was a study that we conducted at Toyota, was that most of the people in a talent management perspective go to those workshops, they complete those action plans, but then they come back to the office and one or maybe two things happen. The first one is, is that the binder that they have that action plan and the one that they receive from the workshop goes straight up on the shelf. 90 plus percent of the time that binder never exits that bookcase or that bookshelf. It stays there and collects dust. The second thing, and this is probably the most unfortunate, and this is the thing that I'll challenge those that are listening to us today to not do, is most of the leaders who hear of an associate who goes to a workshop and come back immediately dismiss whatever it is that they heard at that workshop. In other words, you and I go to this workshop, we're both excited, we come back, we're not going to put that binder on the shelf, it's not going to collect dust. We go down to our team leader or our senior leader that we report into, and we share with them all the things that we heard at this workshop. And some of the things that we gen generated as an action plan that we know we can do to better not only our role, our team, our department, our organization. And typically the leader will look at them and say, get out of here with that stuff. <laughs> We're not doing that. What are you crazy? That's, that's the shame of how it is that things don't get implemented and don't get executed. And that's just a workshop, right? Think about all the time that you and I 
spend in a strategic boardroom meeting or in a retreat architecting strategic plans. And <laughs> what happens to those afterwards? If you, as the leader, you have to, and this is our fourth thing on these six items that leaders need to do to successfully come out of the pandemic, it's own the change. You have to be a leader and leaders lead. And part of that is owning the entire narrative, not only the strategic direction and architecture, but the actual execution and the tactful moments as well, Hugh. I love it. So let's do them, make a list. I'm gonna to try to capture them in the chat so people watching sure. on here can, let's just do the chat one to six. Are they in order, does it matter? Uh, they, they don't have to be necessarily in order, but the first one that you asked, what's the most important from a leader perspective, it's think strategic, act tactfully. That's this is going to be a true test part, of hey. your typing skills, Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tactically? Uh, tactfully. Tactically is fine, too. Aha. Uh -huh. So I'm 75. Do I still have to be? <laughs> right. All right. So go for it. Uh, number two, know your strengths and weaknesses. Okay. Good. Number three, value creation. Oh, oh, say a little about that. Well, this is this is the driving for value. In other words, what's going to make your role more valuable in the organization? What's going to differentiate the work product that you and your team produce? And most importantly, what's the value creation for your organization within the community that it serves? Value creation. Great. Right, value, okay, it's value creating. Uh, okay, that's misspelled. Yep. It, but I know. And, and the fourth one that we just mentioned to you, own the change. Whoa. Yes, sir. I know, Ooh, we, got the, we got four in there. Okay, um, you had some other questions though, and I know we're on the drive to six, but that's four and six. Uh -huh. <laughs> Number five. Uh, number five is be agile and flexible. So one of the concepts and the tech firm that I led, we adopted and embraced was this concept of agility or being agile as an organization and how it is that you can term it a pivot. Maybe it's called innovation. <laughs> Some people might call it change. Some people might call it uh, changing the tire on the vehicle as it's rolling down the highway, <laughs> but, but we've got to be agile as well as flexibility. It's a key initiative for organizations today to not only respond to the market and what consumers are demanding, especially as we come out of the pandemic, but think about the challenges that leaders have put in, or the situations that leaders have been put in over the last year and a half and just how challenging it is. Now, full disclosure, the tech firm that I led, it was very similar to Zoom. It was a virtual platform. I guess I've been an early adopter of these types of uh, virtual meetings places and whatnot. But for the vast majority of leaders that are out there, uh, they haven't <laughs> had to rely on this. They haven't worked with teams that are dispersed. And all of that changed, not necessarily uh, over a period of weeks or months, but essentially overnight. And for a lot of folks, after a specific date, March 11 in 2020, right? 
So their ability to be agile and flexible with how it is that they not only led themselves, but led their teams as well as their departments and organizations, it's crucial. And drum roll, please, number six. Number, number six is you've heard it a thousand times, if not more. It's the concept that people are our most important asset. And as such, the sixth one is, Hugh, invest in people. It sounds simple. It sounds straightforward. I can't tell you how many people, though, tell me, you know, even though in the last year, the 2020 campaign, because of the pandemic, we essentially had a couple of categories from an expense structure in the organization eliminated for the better. I mean, if you think about it, there was very little or no travel, right? And from an entertainment perspective, that pretty much got wiped out too. Now, I know there's a couple of pockets around the country where lifestyles went uninhibited, right? Because of the pandemic. Think Florida, think Texas. There's probably a couple of other places. Um, Orange County would be another, San Diego. But for the majority of us, those two expense categories, um, they essentially got wiped out. There was no more travel and there was no more entertainment expenses. When I meet with a leader and I hear that, I ask them, that, that's really interesting. I would imagine that because of the savings from not having to have those expenditures, that you probably sent your associates to a lot of virtual conferences, maybe virtual training sessions. I mean, I've been, I've been with the same um, sales coach for over six years now. <laughs> he did more sessions last year, starting in March to now, than he has in the previous five years. Um, as, a, as a firm, as a consulting firm, we leaned in with our clients we conducted over 150 webinars of one hour in length or more for our client base just to help them get through the pandemic moment on different topics. You know, the response though that I received though from leaders, if they have zero in entertainment as well as travel expenses over the last 12, 14 months, what has been the investment in people? It's, it's still at the same or lower level. It's like there's almost been a scramble to try to figure out, you know, how it is that people working from home can work from home and, and still put in a solid day's worth of work. We've totally overlooked and eliminated the investment for capital. As we're coming out of the pandemic, that investment in capital and your best capital is your people needs to take place. The best organizations do it. Keeping your people because... It's very expensive. People don't realize how expensive it is to transition to a new employee. Yeah, it's not just the, the downtime. There's just so many factors, and it's it's really remarkable. Um, I saw a survey yesterday where was it 50% or more of the people don't want to go back to the office. Mm -hmm. They want to continue working at home. And we've discovered, you know, about this being flexible. Um, we've discovered there's new ways to do things. So underneath the travel cost, you've got facility costs, which sometimes are pretty large if you bring in a large group together you got all of that facility cost to go with all the travel and entertainment and food so that's a whole lot of money people could spend on um, people development and, and retention isn't it it should be you know you you mentioned that it's very expensive turnover costs an organization 
our statistics lead us to, for the average associate who makes $50,000, that generally is a five-fold investment in replacement. So in other words, turnover costs that organization $250,000 or a quarter million dollars for that one associate. Now, depending on the average compensation level within your organization, you can ratchet that scale up or down, but it's generally a 5X type of an investment that turnover costs an organization. So you're exactly right. Uh, hiring, training, and retaining people, it's crucial to an organization. We're, we're not immune to it in my business either, right? Either in the nonprofit or for-profit. I mean, occasionally we have turnover. And as much as from a cultural perspective, we don't like that and that's not our goal. We also know this much that, you know, people's interests change and we want to support them as their interests change so that way they can go and be successful somewhere else. We always though, we, in our exit interviews, we always want to ensure that we, in the, when the relationship is over working with us, that we've left them in better position as they move forward as opposed to when they showed up. And, and we're 100 for 100% on that one. That's admirable. Um, that's not the case everywhere. And it becomes an emotional thing, which it doesn't really need to be. And sometimes things don't work out and it's nobody's fault. And maybe people time out. So um, uh, I'm getting comments that people love that. So um, you've got programs. I got 10 programs people can study. I got books and books. Um, so people can learn stuff online. How come they need us? How come they need Je How come they need Sam? Why do they need you? You know, there, there's a ton of content that's out there. And I think that if you can go and kind of be a continuous learner and a student of life, you can find wisdom at every corner, right? I, I think that, you know, I typically had the frustrating moment when I would have young associates that worked with me who we'd send off to one of those workshops that we previously mentioned. And before they went, they had this just bad attitude about, I've got to go to this training and, and I'm not looking forward to it. And now I come from the space where when I was in grad school, we at General, and I worked at General Motors, we had a gentleman who had a program called Principled Centered Leadership that later became the Seven Habits book by Stephen Covey. It was Stephen Covey that we worked with. Uh -huh. And so I've always been a, a, just a consumer of knowledge. I felt like that was my exit path, right? My way out of Detroit, which is where I was born and raised. Um, but it was one of those things where these young associates, I would challenge them with, look, here's what you get to do. I know that you're not excited to go. I know it might've been the same compliance training that you went to last year. Um, it might've be a message that you've heard a million times. You might've even heard it from me but I want you to go and I want you to come back and I want you to report out to the team to no less than two, but three items that you heard within that training session that you learned or that you're willing to move forward with. Maybe you heard it before, but it could be one of those things where maybe when you heard it a year ago or longer, you were in position to execute on it. So I want you to bring those strategies back or those new ideas Let's talk them out amongst the team and basically tell us, here's what I heard that I want to work on and here's how I'm going to work on it. 
no less than two, no more than three, but come back with two or three items for it. People would, would that different, and maybe it's a paradigm shift or just a shift in your focus or mentality heading into training, that allows people to get a different angle for when they come back. And it also holds them accountable. Your question though was an even more interesting one. If knowledge and content is everywhere, what do they need Hugh and Sam for? Well, here's what they need us for. And that is that maybe our message resonates with the listener or the, the person looking for the knowledge better than some other methodology or vessel that communicates the content, right? Maybe when they hear the same thing come out of my mouth, it resonates with them and they're able to comprehend it and more importantly, take action. For some other listeners, and I'm not for everybody, maybe, maybe they hear the same message, same exact message coming out of your mouth and it resonates with them. They take it, they consume it, and then they go and act on it. So why do they need different people having the different message or the same message, just a different methodology or vessel distributing it? Well, it's, it's the story of, and I had one of our colleagues share with me, he said, Sam, do you mind talking with one of our junior leaders today? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll talk to them. What would you like me to talk to them about? And he said, the same stuff I've been telling them that they should be doing. My, my thought is that if they hear it from Uncle Sam, they'll actually do it. <laughs> but it, as the parent or parent figure, they hear it from me all the time. They're not doing it. They need to hear it from the Uncle Sam. So that could be another reason why it is that people need you and I, right? Well, and, you know, we need to hear it from other sources. Sometimes there's too much familiarity with us and the people in our teams. When I, um, I served a megachurch in Florida and I brought in over 15 years, I brought in the best conductors in the world to work on my chorus and orchestra and produce a concert. They were with me for a week. And they would say some of the things that I'd said to the choir in the past, I'm sure. And people go, oh, really? But I didn't care because they got it. But when that person left, people would say, well, you know what? You told us that stuff, which I felt good that they actually heard it. But hearing it and acting on it, and the big difference that you're pointing out is that the, the leader intentionally sets up expectations. We're going to send you here. We want you to come back and use some of this stuff. And then it doesn't go cold. That's a huge, I don't know that it's a pivot of in, in, in acting. It's, it's an awareness that, hey, there's something additional we need to add to this. We're investing in this person going there. So let's invest in their success when they come back. Is that, is that sort of what, I, what you said? No, that's, that's it to a T. Earlier, we talked a little bit about the tipping point of a leader will become from good to great when they start delegating. Yeah. Holding your people accountable <laughs> is the other thing. For me, and I didn't recognize it, it's kind of second nature to want to rely on key performance indicators, metrics, data to help me manage. For most leaders, though, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's not one of those things where their comfort lies in, well, let's look at a spreadsheet and let's see what did we do yesterday or how's the month going? You know, from my perspective, that's where my comfort lies in having those types of accounting skills, the analysis of the numbers. I try not to get too paralysis moment oriented where I'm just stuck looking at only data. I wanna find out some real world things as well. But it is one of those things where 
now those two coupled together, the ability to delegate and the ability to hold people accountable, it's crucial for a leader. Absolutely. Accountability is not with a baseball bat. It's, it's really, if people know what you're about, where you're going, and you can state objectives and, and goals and values and principles, then people understand where they're supposed to be. Sometimes we're just not sure of that ourselves. Um, you mentioned earlier the Javelin Institute. Why did you form that? What does it do? And where can we find it? Three questions. So uh, the easy way to find it, javelininstitute.org. Um, and we're a 501c3 that provides executive education. And I know that as a nonprofit, you can have executive education classify as that nonprofit classification, right? I actually want a portion of the proceeds to help someone. Uh, so think of it from, this is my personal mission, is to help leaders who've experienced family hardship. And family hardship, in my mind, Hugh, boils down to a 4D category. It's either a fam uh, family hardship in the moment of death, disease, divorce, or drugs. Death, disease, divorce, or drugs. Those are the family hardship moments that I am, it's a passion play of mine to work with leaders to make certain that when they go through those moments, that they come out the other end successful. I typically, and let me know if you see something different, but leaders who experience any of those four Ds typically see a decrease in performance during those moments. Well, my mission at the Javelin Institute is to try to get that performance back up and on track. I've taken the best of the best when it comes to executive education, training programs, workshops, webinars, those types of things, as well as e-learning modules. So that way, 24-7 virtually, any leader that's out there can go through a course, get some tips to help them out. You and I have something in common, and that is a love for leaders. We also have something in common. I don't know if you know of it, but you have a uh, leadership getting better or making the best of type of a program. And I do too. Mine is called Best Leader in 30 Days. <laughs> so one, one more day, I get 31. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably, that one extra day, you probably gives them exponential <laughs> type of a return on their investment. But that's what we do at the Javelin Institute. And, and that's why I formed it because I wanted to help leaders that were experiencing those family hardships, so. So um, in the words of my colleague, so, so many leaders suck at what we do. And suck is halfway to success. Uh, Jeff, Jeff McGee stole that from him. He works with uh, top companies around the globe. He's right there in your backyard. Yeah, so, I know. I know, I'm, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, I stole that. You can tell him. Um, but I always give him attribution. I'm a boomer. So <laughs> I'm at the front end of the boomers. My wife's on the back end. So we got bookends here going. Um, so what opportunities are there for boomers in this economy? So boomers play a key role as they exit the economy. And this is why we're, we're late bloomers, so to speak, within the M&A space. Um, I, through my affiliation with UNLV, I got to participate in some, some workshops at Harvard. I got to meet the two professors who really spearheaded the entrepreneurship through acquisition um, that type of an endeavor. In other words, you can be an entrepreneur and go the startup route, or you can be an entrepreneur and actually acquire a company. Probably a easier route, and no doubt it is, because 
those entrepreneurs that go the startup route, less than 2% achieve success and success being a, a, high, a high bar. So much easier to find a business with enduringly profitable aspects to it and acquire it. Most people like me thought that that was out of reach. In other words, buying a business, that's, uh, that's the stuff of, uh, you know, Richard Gere and Pretty Woman where he was doing a leverage buyout or maybe Gordon Gecko of Wall Street. I mean, that's not something that, you know, I'm, you know, who am I? I'm never going to raise that kind of capital to buy a business. But it is something where these baby boomers, as they exit the economy, they're leaving behind these really great culture, legacy, and enduringly profitable businesses behind. So there's an opportunity before they fully depart the economy to, to work with them and to acquire their business, especially those that don't have a succession plan or path. So they don't have clear heredity lines established. There's no son, uh, uh, cousin, there's no nephews, no one to give the business to. So a lot of those businesses, they may shudder. And that's not right. That's not good for our economy. I mean, we just saw massive shudderings as a result of the pandemic. So this is how we can work with the boomers. I think that it's a, it's a great way to not only carry on their legacy of the organization that a lot of them, one of them that we're talking with, a 40-year-old business, uh, they've, they've been around forever. They've got a great culture. They have great people that work there. Uh, but it is one of those situations where working with that boomer to help them carry on their business forward, that's a, that's a great way and probably one of the best ways that I know to work with a boomer. And succession plans are important and many nonprofits don't even think about that. So here's my last question. How can nonprofits better prepare for the next black swan event and become recession resilient? Explain black swan event, if you will. Yeah, so, so black swan events were, I mentioned earlier, the 150 webinars that we provided, 100 of them were on the concept of what is a black swan event. This is where in retrospect or hindsight, looking back on it, we should have seen the event coming and we could have better prepared, but we didn't see it coming and we didn't prepare for it. As we drive forward, I think that we'll see not necessarily a kind of a, a conservative approach to leadership when it comes to running their organizations, but I think there'll be more of an outward look as opposed to a solely inward focus. What's going on in the economy at large, not only with our competitors, but globally as well, to see if we can't find some new ways in which to do business and maybe better our business and take in different aspects that we otherwise wouldn't have concerned. That will lead to, while I don't think we'll ever uh, get to a recession-proof business, the way you've termed it, recession-resilient, something that will continue on, and maybe even something that benefits from what occurred in the next black swan event, because it's not a matter of if, it's a, just a matter of when, recession resilience should be the goal. Love it, love it, love it. I'm gonna do a sponsor moment, then I'm gonna come back and ask you to do a final thought or challenge or tip sure. for people from, this is just so content rich. We will transcribe this and it'll be available uh, uh, within 24 hours on the web. So you can get those sound bites that he's passed by just so easily. This is a profound thing that I just said, boom. Our sponsor that let, lets us do these is WordSprint. WordSprint is a mailhouse with a first class, 
class printing operation. So we send our magazine, it's the, the uh, co-published with Jeff McGee, uh, whom you know, a nonprofit performance 360 magazine, and it's mailed to people. We send it digitally, we send it in print, but the print version is where our sponsors get to put their message there. So if you got a message that you want to go to some of those 1.6 million nonprofits in your segment, in your, your avatar, let's talk. But for yourself, wordsprint.com can help you stay in touch with your tribe. It's top of mind marketing. It's mail in their hands. They're going to have it and you back it up with an email. Say, hey, George, the thing you're getting today is important because doubles the results. So wordsprint.com, Bill Gilmer and his, his team have been doing this for 22 years, two and a half million mailings. They know what keeps your supporters supporting you. So when you send that annual message about donations, they know why they need to give the money and they know why they need to be on your board and volunteer to support your mission. Tip of the spear. We're talking to Sam Palazzolo. You know, my, my, my dad and his dad were both accountants too. Palazzolo and it's tip of the spear ventures. Tip, T-I-P of the spearventures.com is the uh it's the business that he's speaking from today and as you see he's quite an expert in what he does and has high value so go check out his website it's a beautiful website sam what do you want to leave people with today you know i i hope that they're able to take these six items that especially as we come out of the pandemic and help them become better leaders i hope they grasp those take them in, work with their teams on them. Matter of fact, I think in the show notes, we're going to put a link. We put together a special uh, page on our website. You can also find it on the underneath the contact us uh, tab on our homepage. But we're going to put a link out there that's going to drive uh, those who are interested in receiving from us 10 success questions solely surrounding the people element that we talked about. It's the sixth item, right? Invest in people. 10 questions that you can ask of yourself, of your team, and of your organization to better orient around people's success strategies. So that should be in the, in the show notes as well. You send me that, I will put it there. We'll transcribe, we'll put the show notes, his, 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 his website, and I'll put in uh, the Javelin website as well. Uh, Bob had a question, but we're out of time. I'm gonna let, I wanna connect you. And um, Bob Hopkins is the, the, the author of uh, Philanthropy Misunderstood. And I think you and Bob should talk. So I will make an introduction and he can ask his question directly. So Sam, you are um, a wise and gracious uh, leader and you teach really useful stuff. So thank you for taking time out to speak to nonprofit leaders and clergy today on the Nonprofit Exchange. Yeah, thank you, Hugh. Have a good afternoon. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>